We talk a lot about Acts chapter 2 in our church, and we should. Every church should talk a lot about Acts chapter 2, because in Acts chapter 2, we have a picture of the first church. We have a picture of the church in its purest form, seeing what matters to the church of Christ, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, that they were devoted to prayer, they were devoted to one another, that they were caring for one another, and then they were going out and taking the gospel into the world. That's church life. That's what it should be. But I think we often look at Acts chapter 2 and those five incredible verses at the end as a practical how-to guide for what church should look like. But we struggle to look beyond the physical. We look at the things that they're doing, and we see the actions, and we see the way they're worshiping, we see the way they're loving, we see the way they're dedicated to Scripture and to the apostles' teaching, and we look at that as a checklist of these are the things that we should do, but we don't ever go deeper beneath the surface and think about what's happening spiritually in Acts chapter 2. As God is forming and shaping a people called by his name, saved by his son, and brought in to new life. For most of us, the church, physical, visible, is often all we see. But the reality is is the church is so much more than just the building in which we meet, but also even than just the people that make it up. There's something more than just the physical presence of the church going on. The church is spiritual. The church is supernatural. And so as we're looking through the book of Revelation, we've seen John begin to reveal Christ for who he is. And that's the big point of this book. This is the Jesus that you worship. This is the Jesus that you serve. But as John reveals his king, as John reveals his Christ, that naturally begins to reveal his church. And so today we're going to look at the church in the book of Revelation and how the church is revealed to us and who we are. Because if you're here and you're a follower of Christ today, that word church, that, that's you. And that's me. And that's all of us together and all of the churches in our world here and now and all of the followers of Christ throughout the ages. This is a revelation of us. And so we're going to see what it means to be the church in its fullness. And this will lay the foundation as we get into these letters to the seven churches that help us understand how churches should live and act and move in the world in which we live. But before we can know what we need to do, we need to know who we are. And so that's where we're going to be today. As we go back to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to read the same four verses that we looked at last week, but we're going to focus in on verses 5 and 5 through 7. And so from Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those 
who, are, who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Oh, Father God, it's so easy to reduce the church down to something so small. A place we go, a thing we do, a people that we interact with. God, even sometimes the most noble things that we look to when it comes to defining the church are not enough. And so God, I pray today that you help pull the veil back, not simply on who you are, not simply on the nature of your son and the power of your spirit, that you pull back the veil and help us to see ourselves. Help us to see your church as it truly is. Help us to define ourselves the way that you define us and allow your definition of who we are to encourage us, strengthen us, support us, and send us out to accomplish the mission that you have saved us to accomplish in this world. And so, God, we just ask that you do bless your word and its reading and the people who hear it. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right off the bat, as we narrow our focus in to the second half of verse 5, John says, to him who loves us. And so the first description that we see of the church in the book of Revelation is that the church is loved by Jesus. The church is loved by Christ. It's easy. If you've been in church for a long time, or the longer that you're in church, or around church, or hear just church language— it's easy to develop a ritual numbness to some of the things that we hear, some of the things that we say, even some of the songs that we sing, almost like a callus. The more that you rub that same place, the callus builds and builds and builds, and it doesn't resonate the way that it once did. And I remember a weird example of this. I experienced it, I guess it was about 10 to 13 years ago or something. There was a little micro trend happening with worship leaders in churches. And I remember... I was probably around four or five different worship leaders who did this exact thing. So they would play the song, I Surrender All, the old, beautiful hymn. This was probably, for some of those guys, the only hymn that they know in their repertoire. And so they would play this song, but in the middle of it, there would be a dramatic stop, right? Not just, the worship leader wouldn't just stop singing. They would stop playing. They would stop the band. It was a whole thing. They'd be, no, 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 wait, everybody, wait, 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 we need to stop. And they would look at the audience, and this was early 2000s, and so all worship leaders felt like they needed to speak with a quasi-British accent. And so they would look at everyone and say, do you know what you're singing? Do you understand what we're proclaiming? Right? Do you really surrender all? And the first time it happened, it hits you, right? Because you think, man, I've been singing these words, but I haven't been saying them. I haven't meant this. I haven't surrendered all. And so it would be this really emotional, deep experience of I need to refocus and hear this. But then by the third and fourth and fifth time that you see that exact same production happen, when they're finally looking at you saying, do you know what you're saying? You think, yeah, and I know what you're saying too, and let's just move through this and get on with it. And so not only did the song become a, a ritual callousness, but the actual production of trying to remind you that it's a ritual numbness has become a ritual numbness because that's just kind of the creatures that we are. 
the more that we do something, the more repetition that we have in our lives, the more likely we are to just kind of forget the meaning of it. And it turns into muscle memory. And I think one of the places where that can be dangerous is when we take some of the things that maybe we've heard from our youth. Maybe some of the verses, maybe some of the, the passages of Scripture that meant something when we were young, those things become a little less meaningful. Some of the songs that we used to sing, we look at those and think, oh, those are old or those are distant or those don't have the same meaning and the same message. I think even of a song that we probably relegate to a children's lullaby that says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And we hear those words and maybe even sing those words and maybe you've had those words sang to you, but they just come in one ear and out the other because it's something that you become accustomed to and something that we become familiar with. But listen to those words. Jesus loves me. Stop right there. Jesus loves me. Jesus who in the beginning was with God and who is God. Jesus, the Word made flesh, the incarnate Word of God. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who shaped and created the universe by the power of His will and the power of His might. Jesus, who has been revealed to us as the reigning, living King of kings and Lord of lords, who is the firstborn of the dead, who conquered the grave. That Jesus, with that enormity and that power, that Jesus, Jesus loves me, who is not any of those things. That Jesus loves you. And we looked last week at how John never lost the meaning of those words. John describes himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he treasured that, and he clung to that truth. And for John, his entire life, the most important thing, the most meaningful thing, is that Jesus loved him. But not only does John define himself that way, but it's how he defines the church. He says, to him who loves us, who loves his children, who loves his people, who loves his church. But that's so easy to either take for granted or deny outright. To just say, yeah, Jesus loves me. We sing the songs. We say the prayers. It's a truth that that just resonates in my mind. Jesus loves me. This I know. Let's move on to the deeper, more important truths. Or because of pride or shame or guilt saying, I don't care that Jesus loves me because who? Everyone loves me and I'm awesome. Or there's no way anyone could love me, especially the king of the universe. And so we either come into a ritual numbness with it or deny it outright. But either way, we have to recognize That this is the most important characteristic of the church of God, that he loves us. Love was the driving force of our salvation. The force that sent Christ to the cross. The force that enabled him to endure suffering and shame on our behalf. The force that ripped the veil from top to bottom and rolled the stone away was a cosmic, universe-shifting love. And this love isn't passive, it isn't ordinary, it isn't ideological, it isn't something that can be forgotten. It's the love of God for us. The kind of love, as we read John 3.16 at the beginning of our service, the kind of love that moved the holy God of the universe to give his one and only son for us. 
That is who we are. If you are a follower of Christ, you are loved by Christ himself so much that he gave everything for you. If you are the church, our church, Redeeming Grace Community Church, in the middle of Loganville, Georgia, we are loved by Christ. The church, universal all throughout history, is loved deeply and intimately by Christ, and we cannot forget or neglect that truth. So I want you to say it with me, but I want you to mean it. These words that maybe you've heard or sung since your childhood, we're going to do some group participation here, and I want you just to say out loud, Jesus loves me. But when you do, I want you to hold that truth. I want you to say it like you believe it and like you mean it. And so let's say that together now. Jesus loves me. It's not very convincing. Say it again. Jesus loves me. How amazing. Is that exciting for you? Is that awesome for you that that Jesus, the Jesus that we're reading about, loves you intimately and personally? If this is not what defines you, if you are not defined as someone who Jesus loves, if this is not what defines the church to you, then something is tragically missing. Because as John reveals to us the true nature of the church, it's not simply an organization that does good things or a bunch of people that have similar common beliefs, but he tells us that the church, in its purest definition, is a group of broken, sinful people radically loved by Jesus. And we cannot dare forget that truth. But then he continues. He tells us to him who loves us that Jesus loves the church and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The church is freed from our sins by the blood of Christ. Now, Stephanie and I, we live kind of in the woods, like in a little wooded cove. If you've been to our house for small group or for anything else, you know, we got some trees around our house. There's some woods going on. We like living in the woods. And there are a lot of critters that live around our house of all various shapes and sizes, particularly lizards that have this weird affinity. This has nothing to do with the bigger point here. But they like to get in our house. We don't know how they get in our house, but they get in our house. And I guess they're trying to run away from the heat and get, get their bodies cooled down. But what they don't understand is that inside our house lives two cats who have no other use in the universe other than killing lizards. It's the only thing that they do well. They're practically useless, except for the fact that they kill lizards. But not only do they kill them, it's not a quick process. They're very fast at catching them, but then they just leave them. And they puncture their backs and just let them wallow and die. It's cruel. They are horrible, horrible little creatures deep down in their souls. And so we try to catch the lizards and set them free, and then they just come right back in. And then five days later, we find them dead or twitching and slowly dying. It's a brutal, brutal process. But outside, when you go outside in all the woods and everything, you see all these different creatures, and you start to realize how cool nature is. And even these little lizards that try to get in our house, you can watch them walk from a rock. And they're one color, and they rock into the grass, and they're another color, and they camouflage themselves as they move. You can look into the woods and feel like you don't see anything, and then all of a sudden you see a twitch, and a bunny rabbit runs through the leaves, but he's almost the exact same color of the leaves, and he disappears. And so nature just reminds us that things aren't always as they seem. And as John is writing to this church, we see a very dire picture of the church. John is an apostle of Christ. He walked with Jesus. He was a disciple and a leader in the church, and he's writing this letter from exile. 
he was taken out of his home and basically sent to die on an island called Patmos. And he's writing to a church that's experiencing widespread persecution. Early on in the life of the church, it was from the, from the Jewish officials and religious leaders, and then it came from people like Nero and Domitian and the Roman Empire, but they were experiencing persecution on every side. But how does John define them? He says, to him who loves us and has freed us. John is speaking in a way here that seems contrary to the reality that the church was experiencing. These were Christians that were suffering. These were Christians that were being arrested and thrown in prison. Remember that line that we read from Paul just a few minutes ago when Paul says, pray for me as I am an ambassador for God in chains. Literally in chains. Paul was writing some of his letters. John is writing from exile to churches that are experiencing persecution. And yet when he speaks to them, he talks about them being free. And again, we're forced to realize that when it comes to the church, there's more than what we see. That our reality is deeper than our physical circumstances. Remember, the New Testament teaches us that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female because all are one in Christ. But we know that we all find ourselves in different situations. And that even here in the first century, there were Christians who were slave and there were Christians who were free. And yet John is saying to all of the Christians who read this passage, you are free. No matter what your physical reality may be, the truth remains that you're free. Free from what? He says we're freed from our sins. And Paul teaches this so beautifully in Romans who says that all of us were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we were enslaved to sin, but Jesus stepped in as our great high priest, as our conquering king. Jesus stepped in and brought us salvation and set us free. That all of the sin and the brokenness in our lives, Jesus separates us from that as far as the east is from the west. All the guilt and shame that holds us back and oppresses us, Jesus takes that and breaks those chains so that when we trust in Christ for the first time ever, we can walk in freedom and make the decision to follow and trust in Jesus. And the freedom that we have is complete and total. It's grace running wild to the point where Paul even clarifies saying, listen, this kind of grace and freedom is the kind of grace that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, and there is nothing you can do to put those chains back on. And how did Jesus do this? How did he set us free from something that we could never have escaped on our own? Well, John says that he set us free from our sins by his blood. And this is where this big old idea, this Latin phrase of Christus Victor comes in. That Christ is victorious. That through his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered death and the grave, but he conquered the powers of hell and evil and even our own sin. In fact, Jesus called his shot on this. When he was being accused of being in cahoots with the devil, Jesus says, no, you have it wrong. I'm the one here to undo everything he started. He said, there's this strong man living in this world, and nobody can overtake it except one who is stronger. And Jesus says, that's who I am. 
And I'm going to walk into that strong man's house and I'm going to take him and I'm going to bind him and I'm going to render him useless because that's who I am and that's what I can do. And what we find is that when we trust in Christ for salvation, Jesus, the strong one, comes into our lives and conquers our sin and our shame for us that we couldn't. And he binds it and he puts it to death. But we still often allow the brokenness in us, the shame and the guilt to come up and help us to start denying the grace and mercy of God. But when we deny grace, when we ignore our freedom, we are in essence making the claim that Jesus, who we just sang about being the universe maker, is weaker than our sin. But he is the almighty conqueror. And that's how he signs off in this passage. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There is nothing that can stand against our God. And so the truth of Scripture teaches us that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. From Christian martyrs to kings and everything in between, we find that true freedom comes to Christ, from Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are totally, eternally, spiritually free. But man, so many Christians live and worship like they're in captivity. But not us. That's not going to be us because we can't now. We have no excuse we see that the King of kings and Lord of lords has radically set us free, and so there is no way that we can pray or that we can worship or that we confess or that we can serve and minister and live like people who are in captivity. We need to begin to use our freedom for freedom's sake and glorify the Christ who set us free. And so not only are we loved by Christ, but we are radically set free by Jesus, and we need to start living like we believe that. Speaking of things we need to believe, it says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And then verse 6, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John tells us that Jesus has made us, has made his church, a kingdom of priests. Now, chances are when you think about church and church government and church structure, you picture a hierarchy. Maybe it even looks like a pyramid when you think about it, that you have at the top, you have the pastor or maybe the elders, you have the pastors of the church, and they kind of sit at the top, and then maybe you have worship leaders and other kinds of ministers and people who are on staff with churches, and they do a lot of things, and then maybe under that, it's, it's the band, and it's the people who sing on stage, and the people who do things on stage that look like leaders and have leadership parts, people that lead community groups or Sunday school classes or X, Y, and Z, and then we get down to where it's just kind of everybody else. And so the church looks like this iceberg where there's a small group at the top that have all the, the governance and the power and the gifts and the abilities and the skills and they do all the big things. And then there's everybody else who just comes to church. We often tend to want to leave it to the professionals. But when we look at how Paul describes the role of, of leadership and authority in the church, it's the role of, of the pastors and the elders of the church not to do everything, but to equip the people of the church to go out and to do the work of the church. And the thing that makes the church so beautiful, 
The thing that makes the kingdom of God so beautiful is it's not about who has the best gifting and the best skill, who has the most personality or the best instruction, but it's about the people and their gifts and all of us coming together, bringing what God is giving us, putting on the table and saying, how can I use this to glorify God, build up the church and care for those around us? But usually the conversations just sound like this. Listen, I, I'm not talented enough to lead. I haven't been a Christian long enough to do anything of substance. I don't know enough to serve the way that I think that I should serve. You don't know my past. I'm not a good enough person to be able to do this. If I get up and I try to serve, if I try to lead in the church, I'm just I'm disqualified for that because of who I am and what I've done. I can't, I can't, I can't. And we think of all these excuses that somehow disqualify us from doing the work of the church. But every single one of those things, if you are in Christ, all of those are a lie. Because you have everything that you need because you have been saved by the God who spoke the universe into motion. If you are in Christ, you belong to a kingdom. A kingdom that belongs to the God who is the Alpha and the Omega. The first word and the last word. Who was and who is and who is to come. The one who is almighty. The Jesus who gave everything to save you. You belong to that kind of kingdom and that kind of king. And so there is no limit to what the church and each of its members can do. And so if you're here and you've put your faith in Christ, then you are a priest. Yes, you, each and every one of us made into a kingdom of priests. But we want to outsource ministry. We want to outsource religion. We want to outsource discipleship. We want to outsource spiritual growth. But this isn't the way of Christ, and this isn't the way of the church. The ones that Jesus saves, he's called us to do greater things than he did. That was the message to the disciples, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to pick up on my mission, and you are going to do things far beyond your wildest imaginations, because I am going to be working in you and through you. And what's amazing about that, from John and Paul and Peter and all the apostles and and the fathers of the Christian church, all the way through Christian history, every single person who has ever done anything beneficial for the kingdom of God or for eternity was not qualified to do so. They were all sinners. They were all broken. They were all not talented enough. They were all not good enough. They were all not in it long enough. They were all just men and women who were saved by the grace and mercy of God and thought, yep, that's enough. I'm going to follow Christ wherever he leads. I mean, good grief. We have a fisherman receiving a revelation from God that is so big and so powerful that he struggles to find the words. And there are even things revealed to John, as we're going to see as we move through this book, that God says, nope, don't write those things down because that's just a little picture for you. And he got something special and intimate. And there was nothing special about John except for the fact that when Jesus said come, he followed and he never stopped. We have to learn to see ourselves as priests called by God to minister and to love the church and to love the world around us. 
It's time to stop just feeling like church members or people who attend a thing on Sunday, but to recognize that you have been radically saved by the God of the universe and that we have promises in Scripture that the ones that God saves, he equips, that he has put the church here and the leaders of the church here to continue equipping and discipling and building you up so that these gifts that God has given you through Jesus will continue to be strengthened in your life so that you can go out and serve. And so it's time to stop asking for permission to live the life that you were called to live and start serving and start training and being trained and be always on mission for the kingdom of God, not worrying about the things that you can't do, but being more focused on the things that God can through you because that's who you are. That's who we are as a church. It doesn't matter how small you feel individually. It doesn't matter how small we feel as a church. It doesn't matter how insignificant you can feel in the grand scope of history. God has taken far less and done far more. And he will continue to do that over and over and over again until Christ returns and makes all things new. And so it has to be our mindset as Redeeming Grace Community Church that we are not just coming here as an event on Sundays and through random times of the week, but that we are coming here together together to strengthen one another as iron sharpens iron, to stir one another up to good works, to equip one another, and then to go out of this place together and to do the work of the church, each and every one of us, from the stage to the back of the sanctuary and everywhere in between, all of us have a dynamic and important calling in the life of our church and the life of the church as a whole, because we have been made by the king of the universe into a kingdom of priests. So what do we do? How do we, how do we process all this? Well, if we're loved by Jesus, then we should live in his love and live out his love. We should abide in Christ and rest in that truth on the days when you don't feel like you matter, on the days when you don't feel like you're enough, on the days when the enemy's whispering in your ear all of your sins and all of your brokenness. We grab a hold to the love of Christ and says, I don't care about anything else in the world right now other than the fact that Jesus loves me and I have affirmation from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 that the God who named the stars knows me intimately and loves me anyway. And then we take that love, and then we go share it. And we love one another in the life of the church with that same kind of love, looking at people, looking at others as people loved by Christ. And then we take that love that we have, and we go out into a world where people don't understand love, and where love is broken and perverted and mutilated. And we go out into the world, and we say, this is what true love looks like. This is the kind of love that is patient and kind, that doesn't hold account of wrongs. This is the kind of love that God has for me, and so this is the kind of love that I am going to have for you, not expecting anything in return, but pouring everything out because I know my God is just going to keep filling me up because he lavishes his love on us. If we've been freed by his blood, then we need to live in freedom and set others free. We need to be Christians who are not held back by our guilt and our shame and our fear, but are boldly running in the grace and mercy of God. When we fall, recognizing that God is there to pick us back up and lead us on, that all of our sins have been nailed to the cross, to strive for righteousness and holiness and trust in his grace when we come up short, and to live with that kind of freedom, to pray with that kind of freedom, coming boldly into the presence of God, to worship with that kind of freedom, realizing that when we sing, God hears. 
But we also need to be kind of the kind of people who set others free. We live in a world with oppression and hatred and anger and literal slavery. And when we see injustice, when we see prejudice, when we see brokenness in our world, it's the job of the church to take up the reins of justice and righteousness and say, this will not stand because I serve a God who will set people free. I serve a Jesus whose first message in the temple or in the tabernacle that we see, excuse me, in the synagogue, one of those places of worship, the first thing that we see Jesus say in the synagogue is when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah saying, I have come to set the captives free. And so we have to be the kind of people that stand for that as well. And if we've been made a kingdom of priests, then we need to live with the confidence of a priest in the kingdom of God. On Tuesday night in our study that we're going through in our small group, Pastor Eric Mason talked about how we can come boldly into the presence of God before the throne of grace, and we don't need a human mediator You don't have to come through me to talk to God. We don't have to go through a human priest because we have a great high priest who has opened the door to heaven for God's people so that we can come freely into God's presence, make our requests known to God, rest in the presence of God, be still and know that he's God, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've come from, that we belong to Christ and we have been made into a kingdom and not to spoil the end of the book, but our kingdom wins. Like it's already won. And so we don't have to have fear. We don't have to worry that our efforts are going to be in vain or that we're going to pursue Christ and we're going to love others the way that Christ has called us to do. And then we're going to get to the end of this road and then Jesus is somehow going to drop the ball and lose the kingdom and we're going to be on the wrong side. Christ has already won the victory. And so we need to live and move and pray and worship and serve with that kind of of confidence. And if you're here and you want to get involved and you want to serve and you want to, to be more active in the life of the church, then, then come and talk with any one of our small group leaders or elders about the places where you can use your gifts for the glory of God because we need you. We all need each other to love and to serve and do or call to do because we have a big calling. Until Christ comes to make everything right and everything new, we are his hands and feet, and those are big shoes to fill. And so we need all of God's people working together, using their gifts for his glory, for the good of the church, and for the salvation of the world around us. So that's who we are. And we can't deny that now. This is the word of God teaching us that as the church, this is us, loved by God, freed by his blood, and made into a kingdom of priests. Are we going to let this just become ritual numbness? Or are we going to hold fast to this truth and have it reaffirmed in our lives every day and live in this way? It needs to be the second. But we all have to make that conscious effort to do that each and every day. So let's pray that that's true.